What we did is developed a tool called Ask Sammy in which all a person has to do, and this might be a patient, a family member, or a clinician, is answer a few simple questions about the problems the person is having and out pops our recommendations for the right adaptive equipment and resources as well. So all of the things that are in our brains that we would normally be saying in person, you get the benefit of getting to that immediately. No matter what time of day it is, you don't have to schedule with us. It's just available to you. Hi, I'm Clarice Grody, and welcome to the Amplify OT podcast. I'm an occupational therapist by trade and a policy wonk by choice. This podcast is here to help you survive and thrive in the U.S. healthcare system through a better understanding of policy, advocacy, and value-based care. So let's dive in. Welcome back, everyone, to the Amplify OT podcast. I am so excited to be talking to Dr. Brandy Archie today. Brandy and I go way back to when I was a new grad and struggling with some issues at work, some ethical problems that I was having with my company. And as a new grad, you know, it's hard to know what's up. Sometimes you're kind of like, am I being crazy or is this really an ethical problem? I was connected with Brandy because she used to work for the company and confirmed that I was not crazy, that there were ethical problems. So I owe a lot to Brandy for supporting me as a new grad, and she is a fantastic practitioner and entrepreneur. So welcome, Brandy, to the Amplify OT podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here so that we can chat because I love chatting with you, so it's good. We're very like-minded people, all about the policy and thinking about, and now, you know, we're both entrepreneurs, which is an exciting new aspect to talk about, because I think starting a business really changes how you think about laws and policy. It becomes a lot more real. That's exactly right, because it really does control, you know, what you can and cannot do. And if you're thinking outside the box and becoming an entrepreneur in some form or fashion, then you have to be on top of that because you have no employer to tell you otherwise. So That's right. There is no compliance officer that is just hanging out that you can call. There's no HR department. It is you. It is me, myself. <laughs> exactly. I am my compliance department. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the benefit of that is too, though. It's, so it's good on one end, bad on one end, good on the other. The other part is that you can be on the cutting edge of things. So if you keep mm-hmm. paying attention, which is why it's so awesome to that you kind of already give us the cliff notes of that and you pay attention to what's coming ahead, then you can say, oh, I see that such and such might be happening in the law. I maybe might pivot my business to do this thing because that's available to us. So yeah, I think it's really important to stay up on it. And I think that's something we've talked about too before, especially when you're starting your own business. Inherently, there is risk. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot of risk management. And some people have a little bit of a higher risk tolerance when it comes to what may or may not be part of the law. I will admit I have an extremely low risk tolerance. So a lot of how I interpret policies tend to be more on the conservative side of better safe than sorry versus other businesses function a little bit more on the let's try it and see what happens side, right? I kind of compare it to whether you're the kind of person that goes like two miles over the speed limit versus someone who's willing to go like 30. (laughs) (laughs) See where the boundaries are, see where you're going to get flagged. And I think that's something that, you know, as you've kind of started your business, I think that's the benefit, right? Of being a business owner is sometimes you don't know whether or not something's covered until somebody tries billing for it. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. 
And when you're a small company, you're able sometimes to take on more of those risks versus when we work for these larger agencies or facilities, they tend to take a fairly low risk tolerance approach, which mm-hmm. is because they, they've got, I mean, you're talking millions of dollars in claims versus potentially losing a few thousand, still damaging, but very different levels. And so that's where you kind of get some of these policies of like, oh, you always have to bill is your therapy diagnosis is generalized weakness. Like mm-hmm. that is not a Medicare policy. But someone with a low risk tolerance decided that that was a safer diagnosis than using the appropriate one, like COPD or a joint replacement or some other kind of therapy. That is one of my personal soapboxes is therapy (laughs) diagnoses and how much misinformation there is around them. But that kind of stuff, you definitely take in a more innovative approach, I think, and take in on more of that risk. Yeah, I would say on your scale of you being at a two and other people being at a 30, I'm the person that drives nine miles over the speed limit. So they're not going to typically pull you over for under 10, but I am trying to push the limit. So I think that's a good good description. Yeah. And, you know, we will, because we're going to talk about some different policies and some of how you structured your business and what you do or don't bill for. And we'll put the disclaimer, neither of us are lawyers. Right. Neither of us work for Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services or CMS. Many of the things that practitioners are doing, and especially some of the things that you've done in your business, have not gone to court. So until they go to court, we really don't know the answer. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of different interpretations of the law as to what you can or can't bill for, what Medicare does or doesn't cover. And oftentimes, until it undergoes some sort of audit process or it goes through the legal process, We really don't always know. And you don't always want to ask Medicare because sometimes you don't get those responses that you want. (laughs) (laughs) So sometimes we just, we see where the boundary is. And like you said, like there's kind of that line, right? Of they may not flag it. So you kind of, it's that risk tolerance where we're going to kind of, where we're going to live. So we're not advocating for people to do anything that is illegal. Obviously consult your lawyers, make a decision that makes sense to you. But also I think the big thing is there's a patient on the other end of that, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm not just pushing for pushing sake, it's that I see a patient and they have a need and I feel like it's justified. And so we document and write what I see. And then you put it out there and see if Medicare covers it. And, you know, if they come back and deny it, then, okay, we've learned that that's outside of their wheelhouse. They're not going to do it. But for my experience, I really haven't got that pushback. I think we put ourselves in these pretty strict boxes that don't always need to be there. And I think that's where your business has been really innovative. So I would like you, I guess we should take a couple steps back and tell us about your business and your newer business, Ask Sammy. Yeah. So I'm clearly an occupational therapist and I've worked as an OT for a long time and I've done all the practice settings, but I've always uh, either worked PRN or sometimes full-time in home health. And the problem that I noticed is there are many holes in the healthcare system, Mm -hmm. but the one that I struggled with the most was people getting the right adaptive equipment in their homes Uh, because insurance does not cover most of the things that people need in a house. And because we're going to talk about this, I'm going to go ahead and define it. So durable medical equipment is what everybody calls all the things that go in a home, but really Medicare's definition is much more stringent than that. Mm-hmm. And the things that they actually cover, because let's say we cover DME as long as it is ordered by your doctor and it has a medical reason for it. And that is true. However, they also get to decide what that definition is. And so what it boils down to is for the things that come into the house, they cover five things, a walker or a wheelchair, oxygen, a hospital bed, a patient lift, like a Hoyer lift or a sit-to-stand lift, 
and on the rare occasion, a bedside commode. And that is really it. Everything else that people are used to wanting to have, like grab bars and shower chairs and toilet risers and a whole host of other things that are really helpful and useful, they don't cover. And being in somebody's home, you really see the need and you're like, look, I've made all the modifications I can do to what they already have. I moved things around. We've tried new transfer training techniques, but you really just need a piece of equipment to help you do this. And I was just kind of left with making a bunch of sheets that said, okay, you can find this cost effectively (laughs) at this Walgreens and you can go to this DME store and get this and like handing that sheet out. But as soon as I did that, it was basically obsolete and somebody might send a family member there and they're like, I wasn't there on the shelf. And you're like, I have no control over that. And that's hard because my goals are set up around that. And if you don't accomplish your goals within the timeframe that I have, which is even shorter nowadays than Mm -hmm. it was when I was working home health, then I either have to say that the patient is like non-compliant because they didn't follow through with my recommendations or I had to come up with something else. And so I was really tired of that situation. And so we created Accessible Living in which we went to the home and did a home assessment, figured out what equipment they needed and got it to them. Um, So we sold the equipment and made sure it got installed there. And we served the Kansas City, Missouri and Kansas markets. That has been a really great experience. We we started that in 2017, went through the pandemic, made a bunch of changes that we can talk about later as far as regard to policy and wheelchair evaluations and such. But to tie a nice bow on it, what ended up happening is Kansas City happens to be a pretty large landmass area. <laughs> so you can live in our Kansas City metro and it could be a long drive to get there. Yeah, it's like a two-hour radius. It's like a two-hour radius, exactly. And a lot of healthcare providers serve a large radi- range mm-hmm. here and want to refer to us, but we just really couldn't get there economically to see the patient and to figure out the solutions. And that didn't feel very equitable, much less all the people that are not in the Kansas City area at all that could really use the service of you know, getting matched with the right adaptive equipment. And so what we did is developed a tool called Ask Sammy, in which All a person has to do, and this might be a patient, a family member, or a clinician, is answer a few simple questions about the problems the person is having, and out pops our recommendations for the right adaptive equipment and resources as well. So all of the things that are in our brains that we would normally be saying in person, you get the benefit of getting to that immediately. No matter what time of day it is, you don't have to schedule with us, it's just available to you which um, is very powerful because people are tending to solve these problems very quickly. Like, oh, right. mom's discharged in two days and I'm not ready. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All too familiar or this afternoon. And how are we going to get yes. them in the house? And how are they going to get off the yes. toilet? You know, you're set up in a hospital where everything's ADA compliant and you've got all the equipment that you need to be successful. And you're going back to a home that was built in the 1980s. That's a yes. split level. <laughs> Yes. And how how are you going to get out of that toilet where there's, you know, two inches on either side of it? Yeah, exactly. And for the clinicians, it's really good because we're a team of OTs that developed this. And so nice. we have curated what equipment is in there. And so while you might search on Amazon for a shower chair and get 963 results, yes, that's the exact number. And that doesn't help you narrow down exactly which is the right one for this person's needs and will fit in their shower and is for their right weight and all those things. 
And so we've done all that work for you. So if you're on, then you can just search shower chair and find the ones that we have listed and match with the right one that you want for your patient and just share that information directly to your patient with a link. So you're not sending a bunch of Amazon links or uh, writing a bunch of stuff down or printing out stuff the way I was doing back in the day. And so we're trying to make it easier for both parties, our, our clinicians and for the families. So yeah, that's where we are right now. Yeah, we all know those packets, right? That have been yes. Xeroxed a thousand times and you have to put the big red X through the ones that they shouldn't get and you circle the ones that they should exactly. <laughs> and you exactly. hope for the best. And you hope for the best, which is a horrible way to go about it, you know? And it's not anybody's fault because it's the healthcare system stops there. We don't have mm-hmm. any tools really until now to make that better because you can't get it covered by insurance. So there's no like send it to the social worker, have them get the doctor's signature and, and like make the thing happen. So we're trying to be that Band-Aid and make the thing happen. So you can just build your own, build a cart personalized for the patient, send them that link. That link never expires. They click on the link. All the stuff is in the cart for them already. Yeah. And I think one thing I really want to highlight and something that we talk about here a lot as well is that, you know, how you really utilize your OT skills Mm -hmm. to then develop a business and to develop a plan. And I think that's something that I really want anyone who's listening to take home is that occupational therapy is so much more than ADLs and recommending equipment than all these things. It's really about the way that we think about problems and solutions and the way that we do this, because you took a situation that you had in practice and you identified where the barriers were, which right is products not being on the shelves, patients not being able to access them, you know, for any number of reasons, whether that's they can't physically get to that store in order Mm -hmm. to purchase it, or they don't have access to internet, so they can't order it online or whatever it may be, or some folks who still don't have credit cards that makes it very difficult to shop online, you know, so you identified where those barriers were, you identified where the supports were, which is right, that activity analysis piece, but you applied it to a business. Yeah. That's why I say that OTs are the best business owners. I think OTs should be the ones that are entrepreneurs because we already have those problem solving skills. And so that's why I'm super encouraged to be a part of a community of OTs that are entrepreneurs. And I hope that more of us do. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And I love that you pointed out about the technical definition of DME. Um, because there is a definition. And so Medicare has it defined and there's in the Social Security Act. It's also defined if you just even go to Medicare.org, you can find the DME equivalent. And one thing I think that's interesting about Medicare's policy is that they specifically state that DME is something that cannot be useful to someone without a specific medical diagnosis. And I think that is one of the key phrases that clarifies why Medicare does or doesn't cover certain things like grab bars, reachers, sockades, ramps, because those could be useful to someone who does not have a certain medical condition or diagnosis. Versus a Hoyer lift, you're generally not going to be using a Hoyer lift without a very specific medical situation. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly the phrase. That's exactly it. Yeah. So I think that's really key that we highlight that and then kind of the difference too there then between adaptive equipment which is doesn't fall underneath the D. I mean, I think that's really where some of that, you know, the reachers, the sockets kind of falls a little bit more in some of that adaptive equipment category than as much our DME category. Mm-hmm. Are you ready to take your occupational therapy practice to the next level? Then look no further than the Amplify OT membership. You heard that right. Amplify OT has its very own membership program. This membership is designed to help occupational therapy practitioners just like you stay informed about the latest developments in Medicare and advocacy. 
you will have exclusive access to resources, webinars, the Mastering OT Policy and Medicare course, Q&A sessions, plus the ability to DM me your questions and get answers fast. But of course, that is not all. As a member, you'll be part of a community of like-minded occupational therapy practitioners who are share their expertise and offer support. So by joining the Amplify OT membership, you'll be able to stay up to date on the latest Medicare regulations and guidelines, learn how to advocate for your patients and your profession, connect with other OT practitioners and students to share your knowledge, and you'll have access to those exclusive resources and webinars so you can reach your full potential as an OT provider. So don't miss out on this opportunity to take your practice to the next level. Sign up for the Amplify OT membership today by going to the link in the show notes or amplifyot.com forward slash membership. Don't forget to stay informed and be the change that you want to see in our healthcare system. So how have you used policy and insurance and reimbursement to influence what kind of equipment you might list or how you kind of approach these situations with patients and even then through even ask Sammy, like, do you include insurance or provide recommendations for when people might try and apply for coverage? Yeah. Okay. So 98% of the things that we offer at ask Sammy are not covered by insurance, but there are the five things that I talked about that are covered. And so on those product listings, we literally say this could be covered by your insurance. And I mentioned that our tool puts people to the right equipment and resources. Well, the resources are built into. And so we've try to simplify the process of people understanding how to get it covered by their insurance and that resource is available online. So you can, it's free and you can just download it from our website. You kind of check it out, I guess, um, but it's $0. And then you get this PDF that has all the links to the things you need in order to get the things covered. And so we try to explain that process as simply as possible because it also is a very can be a very long process because there's multiple parties involved Mm -hmm. and there's nobody's job title that is supposed to help patients get through that process, right? Everybody's always kicking it to the next person. right? And so we're trying to empower the caregivers and the, the patients directly to be like, here are all the steps. So you need to follow these steps. And if you get that done, it can get covered by insurance. So because we spent so much time going through it. So we, we're just trying to do it that way is, is the best chance that we have for helping people get things covered, clearly identifying which ones they should try to do that with. Like if you had to summarize some of the steps, what would you say that they are? Oh yeah, I can tell you directly. So in order to get DME covered, you need a written prescription from a physician or a physician or a nurse practitioner okay. um, on their prescription pad, whatever that is. You also need them to write in their visit notes that there's a, a need for this piece of equipment and why. Pretty much for all the pieces of equipment that needs to be a face-to-face visit. You can't just call in afterwards and say, hey, like you do for your pills and say, hey, I need a new prescription for my whatever medication. No, you have to go in and have a visit, talk about it, have it written in the visit notes, okay? They need to then send both of those documentations along with the demographic information of the patient to a DME provider in your local area that covers Medicare. And we have a hyperlink in that resource that'll let you put your zip code in so you can find out who that is. That DME company then is going to take a look at that documentation and see if it's enough. Some things need more documentation than others, like wheelchairs. And that's why therapists usually get involved in that. Technically, it's not required, 
but mostly, you know, our doctors are not allowed to spend very much time with our patients. Right. They don't tend to write enough to get those things covered. So then you might need a therapy evaluation to write every detail about why you need each piece in a wheelchair, for example, or what the transfer status is of somebody who needs a, a lift. And so that documentation needs to also go to the DME company and then they submit it to insurance. Insurance says whether they cover it or not. DME comes back and says what your copay is and then it gets issued to you. So because there's so many hands in the pot and it can, the ball can be dropped at any one of those stages. Right. And I think that's another important plug to put in or disclaimer as well is that if you are a practitioner and you are not trained in doing wheelchair evaluations or making some of these DME equipment, you need to seek out training and supervision. It is in our scope of practice, but especially when we're dealing with some of these more complex DME recommendations, like I, I feel comfortable making a recommendation for a bedside commode. Mm-hmm. I do not have any kind of specialty training, but especially some of those bigger, more expensive pieces of equipment, it's really important that you seek out training or know who to refer to to help make out some of those, make some of those referrals, especially because with Medicare policy, they only really cover equipment every five years, unless there's been a significant change in status. So Mm -hmm. if you make a poor recommendation for a wheelchair, that patient's going to be stuck with that for five years. I'm so glad you brought that up because I want everybody to actually be very confident in the fact that you have the skills already. You have the clinical knowledge to get somebody a custom wheelchair. And Mm -hmm. I'm using that particularly because that's the thing they spend a lot of time in. So I really try to advocate for people to not have like standard manual wheelchairs issued by height and weight because most people that you see qualify for a custom one, you know? And so all you need to know is a little bit of extra knowledge to know what's available to them and how it gets justified. We also have a letter of medical necessity writer that is not released yet at Ask Sammy, but it's coming soon. Maybe when this podcast comes out, it will be out. So check (laughs) check the website when you hear this because we've plugged that in for you. And so all you have to do is put in a little bit of information about the patient and out pop the right words that you need to say in order to, if you agree with those words, um, or at least get you a template if that gets you started so that you can write for those individual pieces. And you're right, people need a little bit of training, but they don't have to be an ATP. That's not required to write for a wheelchair evaluation. So don't be intimidated. You just need a little extra guidance. So just reach out and ask. And if you happen to have that need, you can always email me and I can help send you templates even if our letter writer is not available for <laughs> therapist use by the time you hear this. because. I think that's really important because if somebody gets stuck with a standard K1 manual wheelchair and it's too wide and too heavy, they likely will move less, right? And that Mm -hmm. has a long-term impact on their health. But if they have something that's actually functional and lightweight, they'll likely do more things. And we want people to do more things because it improves our quality of life. And it also improves our life expectancy because we're not getting sores and we're just doing better overall with our health. So it's like a key thing to not slough over. So thanks for letting me get my soapbox about wheelchairs. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to add to your soapbox, this is within our scope of practice. We do not need to defer to physical therapy. No, I have seen that so many times on social media. Well, PT is really the experts in transfers, aren't they? Absolutely not. If no. anything, I'd say we are, I love my PTs, but I would say we are most qualified. We understand the cognitive component. We understand, right? There is a lot of cognition that goes into operating a wheelchair, especially when it comes to some of those more complex, right? I used to get consulted 
fairly frequently in home health to assess whether or not someone was safe enough to utilize their electric wheelchair, especially Uh like if they were in like a psychiatric institute or in long-term care to come in and assess whether or not they're cognitively okay to operate an electric wheelchair because those things can go pretty fast and can cause a lot of damage. (laughs) They can cause a lot of damage. And you know what? I think OTs should be the ones doing wheelchair evaluations, similar to what you're saying, because we're also looking at not just getting from point A to point B, but what are you doing while you're in that chair? Mm-hmm. Can I get to the sink? Can I get into the bathroom door? Can I transfer easily from this chair to a toilet? Uh, how am I going to get dressed or do incontinence uh, management? All of that stuff can play a factor in what parts you pick for a wheelchair. You know, it's not cut and dry just on height and weight and like how well your hands work. So there's a lot of variation in there, especially we're talking about um, advocacy and what's happening with legislation. CMS just made it that if you want to have an eye-level chair or the chair goes up and down in height, the power wheelchair, then you can write for that and it'll get covered when previously it wouldn't. And there's so many functional benefits from having that, not even including the psychological benefit of being able to Absolutely. look in the eye. And so that comes from people pushing the boundaries, writing for it. It got denied lots of times, but that writing helps to show to Medicare that it's important that that they reconsider covering it. Right. And I think that's something that, you know, I I interviewed Allison Stover back in December, the president of AOTA, and she's also a lawyer and talked about that aspect of in the law, when we want something to change, we have to prove that there's a consequence. There has to have been damage that has occurred. And you talking about that right there where people have billed for something and it's been denied. So therefore, you know, the patient didn't get access to it. That right there is the consequence. But if we didn't have someone billing for those services and having them get denied, Mm -hmm. then we don't really have anything to bring to CMS or to bring to these other insurances to say, look, this is the consequence of why when you didn't cover this or here's the evidence that it wasn't covered, because sometimes we can't just go and say, well, it isn't covered. If you don't have evidence that you've tried to bill for it and it's been denied, then it makes it very difficult to make that argument. We had the same issue when we had the new cognition codes, the new cognition CPT codes, where People were billing them. They said they were covered, but then they were getting kicked back in denials. But it wasn't until people continued to keep billing them and then we could show CMS that they're still getting denied, that they were then able to issue clarifying policy to make sure that their MACs, which are the ones who tend to kind of review a lot of our claims, were actually paying out for that and updated the language. And so we have to show that consequence, which is that part of pushing those boundaries where sometimes you don't know whether or not something's going to get covered. And because of that advocacy that happened then leads to where we are now. Exactly. It's all about the long game. (laughs) It is all about the long game. No, I think that's really fantastic. And I think we've talked a lot about some of the Medicare policy and obviously how that has impacted then your business model, because it does give a little bit, whenever you're operating outside of Medicare coverage, you definitely have a lot more flexibility than when you're operating within Medicare coverage. Sure. What about private insurances, Medicare Advantage plans, VA? How has some of that factored into how you've developed your program or how you've kind of interacted with patients? So we made an intentional decision to focus on getting people equipment in a cash pay model. And Mm -hmm. all of my experience with getting things covered through insurance has been uh, as an employee for another organization, trying really hard to use the tools I had available to me to get patients what they needed. And because of knowing how hard that is and how limited it is, we decided particularly to just do cash pay. But we also wanted to make sure that people knew how they could use their benefits. So for example, 
Medicare Advantage plans, they are all competing with each other, if you think about this, to get more people onto their plans. Mm-hmm. And so they want to show that they have more benefits than the next guy, right? But they actually are all working with the same amount of money from Medicare. Right. And so what they might do instead is say, hey, we're going to give you this book that has all this over-the-counter stuff in it. And they have put in some of those things that we recommend kind of the most, the smaller ones, like reachers and stockades and sometimes a grab bar or things like that. So I do try to have people actually look at that book or look at it with them and say, what's in this adaptive equipment section? Use your benefit for the month to get like $25 off of something in this book to buy that thing. That's 25 less dollars that you had to spend. And then use those dollars to do whatever else you need to do. So that's one way. There's a lot happening in the background with larger startups that are trying to work with insurance plans to have them cover home modifications. However, it is still all very in the works because like I said, you know, each of these advantage plans and these private insurers, their goal is to spend as little money as possible. And the evidence does show that when you have home modifications in place and your environment is set up appropriately, there are less falls. There is less health risk, less rehospitalization, but our system hasn't been set up to deal with that. So things are happening in which insurers know this and they are trying to find ways to pay for it in a consistent way across all of their members, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense, Um, which can't be from our cottage industry of home modification OT experts. It has to be from a a bigger viewpoint um, from a bigger company because that's how big companies work with big companies. They don't work with small companies individually across the country. You can see that with like the way Jukebox Health is expanding on the Northeast right. uh, and Rosarium Health is working in the South. And so those things are going to come to fruition, which is why it's so important for us to be talking about in our notes and our documentation about they need to have these modifications, even if you know that their insurance is not going to pay for it right now. Like we need that documentation to see why they should be making bigger plans to add it into their offerings. And I think that part about documentation is really important. And it's a conversation that I have with a number of people of what is the point of documentation, right? Mm -hmm. Is it to communicate with other healthcare workers? Is it to get reimbursed? Is it to communicate with the patient as to what happened in their visit, especially now as patients get more access to their records than they've had previously easier access and they should have access, but it's also something to keep in mind as a practitioner, what you document and who's going to read it. But Uh that piece about historical information and the role of occupational therapy, because what you document not only influences what happens today, but the payment and reimbursement models of the future. Because when CMS or these private insurance companies are trying to decide whether or not they should continue to cover something or they should add in coverage, what they often do are claim audits, or they'll do documentation reviews where they will pull a hundred different OT notes, let's say, and -hmm. they will go through and see is there documented evidence that skilled services were provided? What were those skilled services? What was the benefit? What was the consequence? And if we don't have that in there, if we just write, you know, patient transferred meniscus to the toilet, then there's not really any evidence from their perspective as to what happened because they're not going to call you up individually so you can, you know, justify to them what happened. They're really going to rely on those audits and claims. That's exactly right. And if we don't, if we don't write it down, it didn't happen. And I'm not saying people's notes need to be a mile long, but it doesn't take any effort for you to say patient would really benefit from a wider doorway. 
or from a ramp and we'll work to try to connect patient with whatever service, you know, like. Right. So strategic phrases, the strategic documentation, like you're saying with the, with your forms, with the uh, medical necessity letters, right. That there, there are ways to word things that, you know, I used to kind of call them like sprinkling in my clinical words, like my magic words, you know, they sound like, right. Using bilateral is more clinical than saying both hands. Mm-hmm. And so by using those terminology, you are demonstrating your clinical competency, you are setting yourself aside as a skilled clinician. And so having some of those key phrases and understanding what providers are looking, insurance p- or payers are looking for is a really key component. So there's ways that you can not document longer, but document more strategically. 100%. Yeah, totally agree. Good. I see this is why we chat because we're always <laughs> we're on the, we're same, on the page. same page. Yes. And I think that talking about that home mods piece is really important because there is this really, people are trying to figure it out, mm-hmm. right? That's why we have studies like the capable model that's really different and covering more home modifications. As the, if you're not familiar with the capable model, it's a, I know you are, Brandy, but it's a, you know, occupational therapist, a handyman, and a nurse. And it's through a grant program through Johns Hopkins. And there's multiple throughout the country where the reimbursement model covers the occupational therapy evaluation and visits. Then they pay the handyman to come and install the equipment. And then there's also a nurse that's involved as well for some of that case management and coordination piece. And so it's a really innovative model, but it's not yet something that's covered by Medicare. And so they have applied through the um, CMMI, the Medicare uh, Innovation Center, to try and get new payment models around that. But it mm-hmm. does become a little bit trickier. And so there are ways that people are trying to figure this out, but it just takes time. And I think companies, like things like what you're doing and the way that we're documenting and the way that we document every day as clinicians, like this is how you can engage in advocacy by just documenting well. Exactly. Exactly. Just, you know, you're already doing the work. Let's just show everybody what it is that you're doing in its highest form. I know that we need to speak to our patients in a way that they understand. And that's a superpower. It's actually a skill that we have to be able to break down complex knowledge and information in a way that's bite-sized and understandable. So people can be like, oh, so now I see why it's so important for me to get my legs elevated with my CHF. Everybody Mm -hmm. told me that, but nobody explained to me why. And now I will adhere to that and my habits will change, right? Like that (laughs) is our superpower, right? Right. And that's why you know it's a superpower because we do it automatically without thinking about it. And we expect that everybody else is already doing that, but they're not. No. Um, And so you just need to write that too, right? And so that Mm -hmm. you don't write the way you talk to the patient, you write what's really happening at the higher level of all the things that you're processing through your activity analysis and so forth. So Capable is a good, a super good example about advocacy, because while they're trying to get Medicare to cover their model, because right now it's it's not sustainable because you right. have to put your own grant funding per wherever region you are at. And then whenever that grant funding dries up, your program dries up. And this exactly. is a need all the time. So we need a regular funding source. So while they're fighting with Medicare or trying to demonstrate through research why they need to do it, private insurers are already noticing that. Mm-hmm. And they're coming up with their own ways to try to create that kind of system you know, for their members because- Medicare doesn't need to attract people to it. They're going to get all the people as they turn 65. They're not putting out the big advertisements. <laughs> exactly. They don't, they don't need that. But Humana is fighting Aetna and Blue Cross Blue Shield for mm-hmm. your membership dollars. And so they want to have innovative approaches to this, but they also want to have sustainable ways to do it. And so all of that 
research from Capable is going towards them, even though they're not the people that they're reaching out to as much. That's why what you do is really important and what you write is really important. Today's episode is proudly sponsored by MedBridge, your go-to resource for advancing your occupational therapy career and, of course, getting those necessary CEUs. If you are passionate about staying at the forefront of our field and enhancing your skills, MedBridge is a comprehensive solution. With the MedBridge subscription, you gain access to an extensive library of high-quality live and recorded courses led by industry experts. So stay up to date with the latest advancements in occupational therapy, explore evidence-based practice, and enhance your clinical skills. One reason that I really like and recommend MedBridge is because they have both intervention-based courses and policy and reimbursement-based courses, and that is a rare find in a CEU company. But here's the best part for our OT Amplifiers community. If you use the promo code AMPLIFYOT at checkout, you'll unlock an exclusive 40% discount on your MedBridge subscription. Yes, you heard that right, 40% off with the code AMPLIFYOT, that's A-M-P-L-I-F-Y-O-T. This is a fantastic opportunity to save some money, elevate your practice, and support AmplifyOT. So don't miss out on this chance to supercharge your professional development and head over to medbridge.com, use the promo code AmplifyOT, and enjoy the benefits of MedBridge while also supporting AmplifyOT and all the free resources that we produce here, like this podcast. So again, head to medbridge.com, use the code AmplifyOT at checkout, and we also have the link for you in the show notes. Yeah, and opens up that opportunity as well for practitioners to use that evidence to support why they do something or why something can get reimbursed. And I think for anyone who's a little confused on the membership dollars at Medicare Advantage, you know, they're paid capitated payments. And so they get a certain amount for number of people that they have on. And if you want to learn about that, we've got entire courses on it in the Amplify OT membership. But the key theme here is dollars. <laughs> Dollars, dollars, dollars. That is always, if you want to know why someone did something, it is usually related to either saving money or trying to, you know, yes, we want to improve patient outcomes, but they're trying to find that perfect balance between Mm -hmm. reducing spending while also not reducing outcomes, but trying to kind of find that right middle. Mm -hmm. Yep. And we can kind of help them find that and figure that out. And that's all, that's the whole idea behind value-based care, right? It's trying to find that middle ground of where do we save costs, but still have the same or better patient outcomes. Because it's right, the whole theory, right? Why are we paying $30,000 for a hip replacement after a fall when we could pay $30 for the tub transfer bench? Right. And making that argument. And I think one thing, you know, we've talked obviously a lot about insurance and their policies. I think another, you know, to throw another component in there is that we also need to think broader than just insurance and one thing that comes up, you know, too, when we're talking about home modifications, especially with renters, is maybe some of our Fair Housing Acts and the American Disabilities Act. How have you used some of those kind of what we don't normally think of as policies that we have to think about mm-hmm. to help patients modify their homes, especially for our renters? Yes. So I think the biggest thing is helping them understand what the law says in the function for them. So if you're renting a, a space, a house or an apartment, ADA says that you are allowed to make the changes you need to make in order to be there and be safe, essentially. I'm not mm-hmm. a lawyer, so this is just my you know Cliff Notes version. What <laughs> it does not require is that your landlord pay for those. Right. 
So where people sometimes get held up at is like, oh, I'm entitled to my apartment complex and they won't do blah, blah, and blah. And I'm like, that's true. They are not going to pay for it for you. But I'm happy to write a letter of medical necessity saying you need to have it and they are not allowed to deny you from getting it. Then we have to do the process of figuring out how we're going to do this cost effectively. You know, and that's kind Mm -hmm. of the, that's not kind of, that's exactly the reason why when I started my businesses, I focused on adaptive equipment as opposed to construction, not because I don't think construction is awesome and tearing out a bathroom and putting in a walk-in shower is amazing, but it's not accessible by most. But everybody has a person that they're dealing with that needs a change to their home or needs something to make Mm -hmm. it more easy. And so adding adaptive equipment can do that for you. And so while we can advocate to get somebody a grab bar, if they pay for it, we can also, I can also well somebody's mind about like, hey, we can just install these toilet rails and you don't even have to talk to your apartment complex about it because you know what? This is just a toilet seat coming off and these rails going on and you can take it when you leave from here. And there's been no damage made because we've had that occasion where people are like, well, I don't know if my apartment complex is going to let me and they don't answer the phone. And I'm like, it doesn't matter because if you use adaptive equipment, then we've not made any damage to their property. So it's no different than you moving a bed in here. You don't have to get permission to get a new bed. Yeah. And I think that's part of understanding what the laws are, right? Making the system easier to navigate. And it's impossible to navigate if we don't understand where to look for answers and we don't understand even the policies that are governing our practice. Because I had a patient too where she was a renter and she really needed a grab bar, but she thought that she couldn't install one because you're not really able to make modifications to an apartment. Or She was really worried too that she might lose her deposit whenever she decided to move out whatever. Mm-hmm. I said, well, you know, under the law, you are able to make reasonable modifications to the environment, which includes installing a grab bar. And I said, just call your landlord and see what they say. And sure enough, you know, they even offered to install it for her because they wanted to make sure it was installed correctly. Exactly. You know, so they, they offered to install it for her if she purchased the grab bar. Mm-hmm. And so once she had that green light, her and I looked at, we kind of made some simple measurements and we picked out which grab bar was going to be the right fit for her. She purchased it, you know, 25 bucks. And then the landlord came in and installed it for her. Cause you know, they have an incentive too sometimes to be the ones to install it, to make sure that you don't rip out their drywall. Yes, exactly. And cause bigger problems. Yeah. And so that's using the policy to the, your advantage. And because I knew that that was a law, I was able to help her advocate for herself. Yes. But if I hadn't known that, we may have just thrown up our hands. Right. And then what would have been the consequence of that? We don't know, right? Right. Like, would have discharged and maybe she would have had a fall. But just knowing what the possibilities are, that's why I'm such a big advocate of like, know what your options are. And when you understand the laws, and then you can, then you know what your options are. And in addition to that, like the reason most apartment complexes that I've come across will install that bar for you is because many people have asked, right? Mm-hmm. And so they've had the occasion where they're like, okay, yes, you can do it. Go ahead. And then lots of damages occurred to their property. And they're like, you right. know what? Let us just, we have a handyman already. We already have maintenance. Let us just make a policy around this and we'll install it for you. And a grab bar doesn't cost a whole lot of money. It's the mm-hmm. installation that costs a bunch of money. Right. So it's worth an ask, you know? So just knowing that it's worth an ask. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, if you're wanting to get into a similar space, it's all the more important to understand all the laws of how this works and your legal responsibilities, liabilities, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And especially if you as a practitioner are going to be the one installing certain equipment, 
definitely encourage you to talk with a lawyer or at least someone else in this space to understand what your liabilities are and where you're at with that. I know that's where some clinicians really feel hesitant to help assemble equipment or to install equipment is because of some of the legal liabilities there. Yeah, I, that's why I think it's really important, no matter what kind of practice you are in, to have professional liability insurance. Oh, 100%. Um, because it's not very expensive and it can no. cost like $80 a year and it protects your best interests. And even if mm-hmm. the, your employer has liability insurance for you in case some patient sues, that protects the employer's benefit. Right. And if it benefits them to not, to basically throw you under the bus, that's what's going to happen, right? As a, if, if that's what it is. So having Absolutely. your helps. Yeah, I definitely will second that of always having your own insurance. I mean, yeah, I think I have my, like, I know AOTA has a uh, collaboration with Mercer, or Pro Liability, whatever they're called, where you get a discount if you're an AOTA member. And I think you're right. Like it was maybe $80 a year when now it's more because I have it th- for my business and consulting, but it's like 200 bucks. It's not, yeah. you, you know, know a $200 is a hell of a yeah. lot cheaper than a million dollar lawsuit. Yes. <laughs> And their standard coverage is for like $3 million. And so, mm-hmm. and if you want like the 5 million coverage, you pay like $5 more a year or something. Like, I think I maxed out all the, t- all the coverages. I maxed <laughs> it out, you know, and like I said, low risk tolerance. So I want to know that I've got coverage, but yeah, even though my employers have always provided liability insurance, it's a very good point that it really is there to protect the employer. It's just like HR. HR is there for your employer, not for you. You know, we would like to think that our employers would have our back, but they have different incentives. You want to protect you. Your employer wants to protect themselves and all their other employees. So if it's easier for you to go, that's generally going to be the route it's going to take. Yep. Which is unfortunate, but it's also the realities, which is why you need to protect yourself and why you need to understand the policies. Because we also can't always trust that our employer is going to tell us the right information, which is how Brandy and I got connected in the first place. (laughs) Full circle. Full circle. Our employers may sometimes have good intentions, but it is a mistake to assume that they always understand the law because mm-hmm. we're people and yeah, laws and change. It's your license too, mm-hmm. right? We have to take ownership of that. Like it's your license that you're operating under and that, and it's your license number. And so that's why we should have the professional responsibility to stay up to date and just at least on the basics that apply to our practice. Yeah. And it is in the code of ethics in case anyone's wondering to understand the rules and regulations that govern your practice. So, yeah. you know, there's your, there's your hot take is that you're not an ethical provider if you don't understand the laws. Yeah. I do want to ask you, cause I know we talked about this very briefly about the licensure compact. And oh, so yeah. we'll do a very quick summary. Cause I think this is an important part where we think about the licensure compact as being really beneficial for us as individuals, especially if we're going to be moving different states or you work on a state line, like you and I are both from Kansas City and you're right there on the state line of Missouri and Kansas. And so it'd be great if I could just manage it all in one place and having to instead of doing the two different applications. But I think you had a really interesting idea around how this can also be useful for businesses. And so I'd love for you to quickly tell us about that. Yeah. So the OT Compact is going to be really impactful because it will give us more reach to do what we do already, right? And mm-hmm. so, especially with telehealth um, becoming more available and technically still available to bill under Medicare, we'll right. see what happens at the end of 2023. But should it get codified into law all the time, then you could essentially build your own practice via telehealth if you are working in an area where your physical body does not need to be present. For example, we do virtual home assessments in the states Mm -hmm. in which we are licensed 
here at Ask Sammy. And with the OT Compact, we'd be able to reach more people more easily because as soon as it goes in, not goes into effect, but as soon as the OT Compact Commission opens this up for us to apply for our compact license, which is what it's going to be called, then we will be able to serve in like 25 states or however many they have signed in once this goes live, hopefully in another year or so. Um, And people should know too that if you want to know more about the OT Compact and continue to advocate for the things you want to see what the OT Compact do for us, all of their meetings are public, open to the public and are listed on the commission's website. And I've been to the meeting and I've been the only guest there. So if you have something you want to say, <laughs> it's really easy to say it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's otcompact.org, I think is their website, so. something like that. If you just look up Occupational Therapy Compact or Licensure Compact, you'll find the website. It's something like that. And AOTI, I know, has links to it. And I talked with Megan Poidler about the compact long time ago when I first started the Amplify OT podcast. So go back to like episode like three or four or something and it'll be yes. there um, all about the compact. But I think it's, you know, and again, that's where, you know, you have such an entrepreneurial mindset where you're not only thinking about the benefit of to us as individual practitioners, but how then we can build businesses around this new law that, exactly. which is the compact because the compact is a law. It has to go through legislation and passing through Congress. And so it's a really exciting opportunity that I think will build a lot of entrepreneurial opportunities for practitioners and then also bring a lot more access to our patients. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love that you mentioned, you know, only doing it in states you're licensed in, because that is also another little mini soapbox of just because you don't call it OT doesn't make it not OT. You need to make sure you're following licensure laws as well as any kind of payer law. Yes. One one last call that I'll have is if anybody has a business that works with OTs or a, you're you're an entrepreneur who would find benefit in being able to check OTs licenses or let their licenses in our states in a programmatic way, we are advocating for that with the OT Compact Commission so that if you have a business in which you're like making a directory or something and OTs are going to be on it, wouldn't it be awesome if you could just plug into the OT Compact and some soon as somebody registers for your service. Um, you could easily see that they actually are an OT and not just masquerading as one <laughs> and without you having to actually go to the state licensure board and type the number in and all the things. And so with the technology they're building, it's possible. They just need to know that it's important for us as business owners. So if you're out there and that would be important, let me know so I can add you to the list as we advocate. Yeah, I think that's fantastic building that national database versus, like you said, having to go to each individual state. And that's a big thing that they've been proposing with the compact as a benefit is that, you know, it'll be easier to find out who's violated their license, when, where, um, makes it less of a burdensome process. So it should make, you know, licensing even safer than it may have been previously makes it harder for bad actors to hide because the whole point of having a license is so that you can take it away from people who don't deserve it. Um, And I think there's a lot of really great opportunities. I mean, even just large employers who work in multiple states probably be so much easier than trying to depend on because I mean, it is possible to forge a license so much easier than trying to get your employees just to submit it to you or to look at the databases and make sure they're actually licensed in the states that they say they are. I mean, think about travelers, right? Those traveling companies, they would hugely benefit from a system like that. That's definitely true. I hadn't even thought about that. But yeah, there's they have so much manpower, I'm sure, just working on getting people licensed and making sure that their licenses are up to date. So yeah being able to have a national database will be transformative for everybody. Yeah. 
Well, Brandy, before we wrap up, do you have any final soapboxes that you'd like to like to step up onto? <laughs> I have lots of soapboxes that I could get on all around adaptive equipment and home modifications. I what I will say is I love to collaborate. And so if anybody has an interest in adaptive equipment, home modifications, OT entrepreneurship, reach out to me. Find me on LinkedIn. That's where I'm active the most. And let's chat about it. And I hope that people will use AskSammy.com um, as a tool and a resource to find the right equipment for their patients or to just send your patients to it. So that's one less thing you have to do with them and use your very valuable treatment time for the other actions that you need to do. So, yeah. Yeah, perfect. And I can already hear questions. Do you take field worker capstone students? Yes. <laughs> I feel like I can already hear the faculty thinking in their minds. And so I feel like I should just go ahead and do them a solid and ask you if you take students. So we do, and we're not a good site anymore for field work one and two uh, because we're not seeing patients as much because we're doing everything online. But we are a great site for capstone students. So anybody interested in entrepreneurship, low vision, building a tech business, and health tech, we're a great place to try out your ideas and to give us some. And the founding of Ask Sammy was really helped out by a capstone student, Brittany Cerevera. So you'll see her in some of our videos. She created a bunch of our product videos. So we're happy to have capstone students. Perfect. And if anyone wonders, Amplify OT takes capstone students too. There you go. Yes. <laughs> I have, I just had uh, my new capstone student, Alicia. She started last week. And so I generally, I can't take fieldwork students because I also do not see patients. So just me sitting in my office, not a very good <laughs> fieldwork experience. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> But all these cool capstone projects, though, make sure you post them on otpotential.com yes. uh, is a good place to share what you're doing with your capstone uh, and look for capstone students. So I told you, I'm all about collaboration. So it's another OT-led business. Yes, yeah, Sarah Lyons got some fantastic stuff going on with her occupational therapy database where yep. you can find like that's another pro tip. We're just talking all sorts of topics. Pro tip for anyone looking for their capstone is the occupational therapy database is a great way to find practitioners who are in an area of interest that you're interested in where they have profiles. And so, I mean, Sarah's a really innovative entrepreneur. I, I love Sarah. So, and then, yeah, the capstone database that she's building out as well is really amazing to see some of the innovative work that's really going on in the field. And that's a great too. If you're an entrepreneur, you're interested in entrepreneurship, peruse the capstone database, see what people are working on and see if there's a way that you can carry out their project and turn it into a, a business. Cause you know, they only get 14 weeks to build something and may not be able to follow through. So that's a good way for capstone students, you know, think about uh, trying to sell your business plan to entrepreneurs. Yeah, exactly. All right. Don't give that away for free. Don't give it away for free. It's a good idea. Just didn't build on it. Yeah. I mean, you and I are perfect examples that we are not, I am completely non-clinical and you are mostly non-clinical at this point. And so still just as much an occupational therapist, still using that OT lens literally every single day. Yeah. And make sure you keep saying that because when I introduce myself and say, oh, I'm Brandy, I'm an occupational therapist. That's like the first thing that comes out. And because even though I'm a tech founder and an entrepreneur and all these other names, I could be a first, I'm an occupational therapist and that helps with our branding. And that is advocacy right there, folks. There you go. Look at that. Dr. Brandy Archie engaging in advocacy all around the board. Yep. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Amplify T podcast. I'm sure we'll chat again, especially once the licensure compact is a little bit more developed, which yep. I know we were hoping for this summer. Doesn't sound like it's going to be this summer probably yeah. looking more into next year. So we stay tuned for whenever that comes and we'll keep you posted. 
If you made it this far, I want to just take a moment to say thank you so much for listening to the Amplify OT podcast, and I hope you're feeling a little more inspired and prepared to amplify your value and the value of occupational therapy. If you found yourself at any point thinking, gosh, I guess policy isn't that dull and boring, then you're definitely going to love how we talk about policy and advocacy in the Amplify OT membership. There's a link in the show notes where you can sign up today so you can take an immediate next step towards emerging as a confident clinician. And of course, don't forget to follow the Amplify OT podcast so that way you never miss an episode. And you know, while you're there, why don't you go ahead and leave us a five-star review because that's the best way to help others find the podcast too. And of course, thank you so much to Jessica Riccio for editing this podcast and for all of you for giving me a reason to record it. You're now officially part of the OT Amplifier community and you are now prepared to go out there and advocate for OT because remember, if we don't advocate for occupational therapy, then who will?